If you have a Bible, please turn with me to the Old Testament, to the book of Judges, and Judges chapter 2 specifically. Genesis, Exodus, Exodus, Leviticus, number, Numbers, excuse me, Deuteronomy, Joshua, and Judges. It's the seventh book of the Bible. It's page 258 if you are using one of our Pew Bibles. Today we're beginning a new sermon series through the book of Judges, something that will take us approximately six or eight months to work through, give or take. And I am excited. Judges is fascinating. It's so different than what we're so often used to. And Judges, as I hope you'll see, is a book that is full of gospel, deep gospel truth. However, as we begin, I must offer a disclaimer, without a doubt. If Judges were a television series, it would be rated TV mature, mature content, rated R, without a doubt. It is a book that is full of very graphic, at times, violence. It is a book that is full of pronounced sexual euphemisms including homosexual euphemism as well. It is full of, frankly, very shocking behavior, even among the people of God. In fact, I'm going to argue this in just a moment, but so often we neglect judges in our day, and and we do so, it's so often neglected, because it's hard to make sense of. What is some of this stuff doing in the Bible? What purpose does it serve, especially for us as sophisticated modern 21st century Americans. So I want to give this disclaimer right up front that there's going to be some shocking things that we're going to cover. Um, And not only that, but the nature of judges is is such that the way that I preach it is going to be very different as well. It's not a book that we can just sit down and go verse by verse through like we did in the Gospel of John and set out propositional truths. The nature of Hebrew narrative is very thematic. The message is conveyed often through textual connections. It's, a, it's, cert, it's definitely a, a work of, of literature and a magnificent work at that. There's key words and, and motifs and themes and allusions so that the truth of the text is often found just below the surface. So we're going to have to take some work to get through this at times. We are indeed talking about a book that was written as many as 3,000 years ago, perhaps. But nevertheless, despite the blood, despite the gore, despite the at times very explicit sexual, sexual sin that we see in here, again, Judges is a book full of gospel truth. Judges is a book that is full of Jesus Christ as the true judge of Judges. And so today, I simply hope to whet your appetite to these things, to give you a little taste and introduction to the book before next week we, begot, we, we dive in in detail. So here in chapter 2 of Judges, we find in verses 6 through the end of the chapter a kind of summary of the entire book. I'm going to read that, and then I'm going to conclude by reading the very last verse of the book, Judges 21-25. Because this really summarizes what the entire book is about. 
So Judges chapter 2, beginning verse 6, let's now hear God's word. When Joshua dismissed the people, the people of Israel went each to his inheritance to take possession of the land. And the people served the Lord all the days of Joshua and all the days of the elders who outlived Joshua, who had seen all the great work that the Lord had done for Israel. And Joshua, the son of Nun, the servant of the Lord, died at the age of 110 years. And they buried him within the boundaries of his inheritance in Temeth Hariz, in the hill country of Ephraim, north of the mountain of Gash. And all that, that generation also were gathered to their fathers, and there arose another generation after them who did not know the Lord or the work that he had done for Israel. And the people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord and served the Baals. And they abandoned the Lord, the God of their fathers, who had brought them out of the land of Egypt. They went after other gods from among the gods of the peoples who were around them and bowed down to them, and they provoked the Lord to anger. They abandoned the Lord and served the Baals and Ashtaroth. So the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel, and he gave them over to plunderers who plundered them. And he sold them into the hand of their surrounding enemies so that they could no longer withstand their enemies. Whenever they marched out, the hand of the Lord was against them for harm, as the Lord had warned, and as the Lord had sworn to them, and they were in terrible distress. Then the Lord raised up judges who saved them out of the hand of those who plundered them. Yet they did not listen to their judges, for they whored after other gods and bowed down to them. They soon turned aside from the way in which their fathers had walked, who had obeyed the commandments of the Lord, and they did not do so. Whenever the Lord raised up judges for them, the Lord was with the judge, and he saved them from the hand of their, from the hand of their enemies all the days of the judge. For the Lord was moved to pity by their groaning because of those who afflicted and oppressed them. But whenever the judge died, they turned back and were more corrupt than their fathers, going after other gods, serving them and bowing down to them. They did not drop any of their practices or their stubborn ways. So the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel. And he said, Because this people has transgressed my covenant that I commanded their fathers, and have not obeyed my voice, I will no longer drive out before them any of the nations that Joshua left when he died in order to test Israel by them, whether they will take care to walk in the way of the Lord as their fathers did or not. So the Lord left those nations not driving them out quickly, and he did not give them into the hand of Joshua. And then the author's conclusion of the entire book of Judges in Judges 21-25. In those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. Bow with me in prayer. Our Father, before us today is an account of your dealings with your people in real human history. We know these things were written down for our instruction, so we ask that you would fill us now with your Spirit, that these truths might create faith and sustain faith and love for you in our hearts. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. Without leaders, chaos reigns. This is undoubtedly a self-evident truth 
down through human history, but it's also the central message of the book of Judges as well. Without leadership, without the rule of law, without the ordering of a, of a, of a society, the governing of a society, without the ordering of a community or even a family, everyone doing what is right in his own eyes can only lead to chaos and anarchy. And why is this, of course? As Christians, we know it's because of the exceedingly sinfulness of man by nature. And that we know that even the rulers in government and the ordering of the home and and the ordering of the church is a gift of God's grace for the common good. Everyone doing what is right in their own eyes can only lead to disaster, no matter what kind of community that we're talking about. But more than this, the book of Judges not only illustrates that without leaders, chaos reigns, but it struggles with this question, not only is there not, an ad, uh, not a leader to lead the people, hence the chaos, but it laments, in a sense, that there is no adequate leader, that there's not the right kind of leader. And this really lies at the heart of what we're going to see. This is a central question that the book of Judges begins with in chapter 1, verse 1, and it ends with as well in chapter 21, 25. Who will lead God's people? Who will lead them in the way that they should go? Now just to kind of set the context for the book of Judges, to let you know what's going on here. Judges falls falls in a period, essentially, that is stuck in between the glorious kind of uh, conquest of Joshua and then the dynasty of King David and his descendants. So it's this kind of transitional period. They've been delivered out of Egypt, right, the bondage. Israel's been given the law, they've been given the worship, they've been given uh, the testimony, they've been led to the promised land. But the book opens with a crisis. Joshua has died. And the question from chapter 1, verse 1 and on is, who will step up now that Joshua is gone? Who will lead the people of God? And of course, as we see, the answer becomes clear right away. Nobody steps up as an adequate leader. And chaos quickly ensues. This then is where the judges step in. In the absence of these leaders, God raises up judges at various times in various ways. They're not appointed judges. They're not descendants from the proper lineage. They are just individuals that God, out of the blue, raises up to deliver His people from total destruction. But there's a pattern that we see in the book that it occurs again and again and again. A cycle, and we read of it here in chapter 2. There's a lack of leadership which leads Israel to fall into sin. This angers God, and so He hands Israel over to these tormentors, the nations around them that, that, that oppress them. They finally have enough, and they cry out to God. And in response, God raises up judges, um, judges in the sense are, are warrior, or warriors, they're, they're, they're warlords, they're 
um, you know, men and, and actually women too who grant them temporal salvation through warfare. This happens over about a 350 year period with 12 different judges. But the problem is, what happens is they immediately, just as quickly as God delivers them, they immediately turn back and fall into the very same sin. And this cycle repeats again and again and again. So the one central thrust of this book is, okay, clearly there are deeper issues here that the judges aren't fixing. In fact, even the judges themselves get worse and worse and worse over time. The issue is is that something must change. If God is going to fulfill the promises that He made to Abraham, the promises that He made to Moses and Israel, something more than just temporal judges and temporary salvation is needed. This is not the way that things were supposed to be. The covenant community cannot function unless something changes. That is the burning issue that the author is dealing with. And so ultimately here, just to to kind of lay it out before you, the problem of chaos as a result of human sin and and the lack of leadership will never be worked out unless God steps in and does something again. The lack of of leadership will never be addressed unless there is someone else, someone more permanent, someone greater who appears on the scene. The lack of rest from their enemies will never come unless someone else conquers for them. So the central issue of Judges is who will lead us? Who will lead the people of God? And all of that is encapsulated in this last verse. The, the reality expressed in the fact that there were, there, in those days there was no king in Israel and everyone did what was right in his own eyes. This is the issue. No leadership, sinfulness of sin comes back again and again and again and again. But this morning, as we jump into, I should say before we jump into the details of this narrative, I really want to answer the question for you today. Why is this book important? And what does this have to do with all of us? What does the kingship in Israel have to do with us? What does the lack of leaders have to do with my life here today? Why would we study this book? Why would we think that it's relevant to us? What is going on? And what does it change in our lives, in our perspective, in our faith, in our practice? And so in this, I just want to whet your appetite for the book by giving you five reasons why the book is important for us today. Five reasons why the book is important for us today. And this struggle with kingship and sinfulness. The first is this. Judges is important for us because it's so commonly misunderstood and misapplied in our day. Easy enough, right? It's so commonly misunderstood and misapplied in our day. Remember I just told you that 
The Judges occupies this transitional stage in Israel's history. It's not the glorious conquest, which is inspiring and cool information, right? And it's not the dynasty of King David. And so people all too often have just looked at it as mere history. The only purpose that it serves, essentially, is to recount for us the history of Israel, like the annuals of time, right? The history books. But as we approach this question, as those who have a robust theology of the Word of God, we must approach it differently. We must ask, what is the point of this narrative? What is the goal of the author? What is the reason for why it's placed in the holy canon and preserved for us? How does this book, how does this period of history fit into the Bible's larger story or or the meta-narrative of God's work and history of redemption? We know from the New Testament, like in places 1 Corinthians 10-11, that these things, Israel's history, were written down for our instruction. So we ought to long to be people of the Word. To know that it's inspired by God no less than is the book of John or the book of Romans. And it is thus relevant to us, just as relevant to us as the book of John and the book of Romans or Hebrews as well. We must strive to find how it fits in God's purpose of redemption in the Bible's larger story. But furthermore, it's not just neglected in our day. In fact, I'm just, I would be curious to poll the audience. I'm not going to, but if we were, if, if I did, I would be curious to know um, if any of you have ever even heard a sermon series through Judges, or maybe even a sermon itself. Maybe perhaps, you know, Samson or Gideon maybe, but it's not a book that's often preached today or even much attention is given to. But it's not just neglected, it's also misunderstood. And, and no doubt the reason for this is because to us 21st century Americans, Judges is savage. It's bizarre. There's some legitimately messed up stuff going on here. There's ruthless holy war. Sounds like jihad. Killing women and children. There's this strange left-handed assassin who slaughters a fat king. We have this woman who pierces an evil king with a tent peg. We have an Israelite sacrificing his own daughter to God. We have this Mythical man straight out of the Avengers, right? He-Man, Samson with his long hair and tremendous mythical strength and his infatuation with this certain Delilah. How are we to find grace and gospel in this? What does this have to do with us Today, it's so much easier just to to go to the New Testament, right? To find stuff that's much more relevant, much more practical, much more inspiring, much more applicable to our daily lives. But but this stuff, what is it even doing in the Bible? In fact, I even saw a Babylon Bee article this week that went something to the effect of uh, um, kid puts down violent, renounces violent video games and picks up the Old Testament instead. And it's kind (laughs) of... 
humorous take in the sense that there is a lot of gore and violence in the Old Testament, and we certainly see that here. What do we do with all this? The problem, though, becomes, and so often in our day, is instead of ignoring the book, the church at times has just tried to sanitize it a little bit. Perhaps you grew up hearing Sunday school lessons about Samson, right? And Gideon. Like we were at the Bible Museum back in December, uh, back in December, in, sorry, back in September. And uh, the Bible Museum has this great children's exhibit. And they had this thing where, where uh, my son Riley, I've got him on video, um, there's these two pillars and there's cartoon figure of Samson. And, and you can push the pillars and it like, you know, it's like following the temple on the, on the evil Philistines. It's, it's really neat. But uh, perhaps we, we grew up hearing these types of inspirational stories about what a great leader Samson was. But they leave out the parts about his pride about his excessive self-serving, about his desire for personal vengeance and not caring about the people of God, about his uncontrollable sexual lust. All that's just kind of, oh, okay. Well, forget about that. Be like Samson. Or, or then we have Gideon. We have Gideon and his mighty men, right? And he lays the fleece out and so inspirational and he whittles his army down. But you know what? What about his weak faith? What about his... Um, attempt to seize power at the end of his life what about his love for the rain god Baal again and again that stuff's never mentioned that's never talked about judges is so often seen and put forth before us as just providing us with moral examples positive and negative examples for us to follow be like Gideon be like Samson well except for those things that we won't talk about It's sanitized. And this is a gross misunderstanding of why the book was given to us. God did not give us judges to give us inspirational stories or even moral examples to follow. In all the judges, what we see is the Lord is actually pleased to use weak and sinful and inconsistent sinners to accomplish His purposes. And He does that as a highlight of His grace, but He he does that also because to demonstrate that mankind can't be trusted in. Man can't save you. The Lord is the true hero of the narrative. And so Judges is important Because it's so neglected and it's so often misunderstood. And yet, I promise you, with a little digging, there are some diamonds in this rough. There are some gospel treasures that can be found with just a bit of effort. But secondly, another reason why Judges is important is because although it takes place at a very different time period, a very different culture, The life setting is actually very similar to ours. Judges is important because the life setting is so similar to ours. No doubt, the situation in Judges looks a lot like modern day America. All throughout Judges, there is cultural and moral and political upheaval and decline. We see 
Leaders rise and fall. Some get what's coming to them. Others succeed beyond all odds. We see factions. We see wars. We see civil wars. We see domestic disputes. We see deception, treachery, traitors, warlords, terrorists. It's the day we live in as well. Furthermore, it's interesting too how women play such a prominent role in the book of Judges. We have Caleb's daughter in chapter 1. We have Jael who slays the evil king with a tent peg. We have Delilah, the prostitute, uh, excuse me, Delilah and then the prostitute, the prostitute at the end of the story that plays such an important role. We have Deborah, who many see as one of the judges, a prophetess. Women appear at key times in this narrative all throughout. And what this illustrates for us is that God is often pleased to use the unexpected. He's often pleased to use the weak in the eyes of the world to accomplish His purposes. That it doesn't depend upon the strength of the human being, but but whether the Lord is with them or not, whether man or woman. But you know what else? It also shows us the scarcity of male leadership in the nation. And that's probably the main goal. Men failed to lead and obey as God commanded them to. And so what happens? Women rise to the occasion gloriously. And sadly, even when men are in power in Israel, so often in the book they use their power to oppress and abuse and take advantage of women, which highlights the great depravity that existed in the leaders that were around. Brethren, doesn't this sound like so much of what's going on in our day? Don't we see a lack of leadership in our country? Don't we see a lack of male leadership in our society, in our homes, in our communities, even in our churches? Don't we see powerful men using their position to take advantage of and abuse women? The life setting is so similar to ours. We're seeing a replay of the book of Judges in our culture right now. A wise man once said that the only thing needed for evil to triumph is what? For good men to do nothing. Here, the closing refrain of the book ought to echo with us. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. This is our culture. Be true to your authentic self. Don't let anyone tell you what to do. Think for yourself. Act for yourself. Pursue your own goals, your own dreams. Trample on anyone that, is nece- that gets in the way of fulfilling what you want out of life. This book is relevant because we are in a very similar situation. But thirdly, and related here, Judges is important to us also because it vividly illustrates the sinfulness of sin. 
It vividly illustrates the sinfulness of sin and ultimately the desperate condition of fallen humanity apart from God. In a very real sense, all of the questions in this book about kingship and leadership, taking the land, can all be boiled down to one central theme, the sinfulness of sin. That lies at the root of the problem in this book. And that is what the author is kind of longing, crying out that he doesn't see a cure for. Judges uh, depicts how the people of God had the law, the true worship, the promises, the promise of God's blessing, and yet they were powerless to obey, fulfill the terms of the covenant on their own. We see, as the Heidelberg Catechism teaches us, that the natural inclination of man is to hate God and to hate people as well. And so we see Israel essentially devour themselves at the end until there's almost nothing left. The decapitation of the prostitute in chapter 19 through 21 is kind of a living parable for what Israel is doing to itself. I love how Mark Dever puts it. He says, Judges shows us that people naturally respond to God's blessing with sin. Did you get that? It struck me right here. People naturally respond to God's blessing with sin. That's talking about you and me, not just Israel. This is the sad truth of human nature that we see in this book. And God tells them that it's going to happen. Like, like Jesus telling Peter, you're, you're going to deny me three times. No, Lord, I'm stronger than that. He tells them this is going to happen. And He urges them to follow through with obedience, yet they still fall in love with the things of this world. They still fall in love with the Baals and the false gods, despite every blessing and reason not to, despite God blessing them in so many ways and giving them so many things in this life. This is human nature on display. This isn't one of my points, but it highlights the gift and the necessity of the indwelling Spirit. The Spirit did not indwell every member of the covenant community in the Old Testament, in the Old Covenant, but we have that promise with the New Covenant. But what we see in this with Israel is that Israel didn't just fall into sin. But they became worse and worse and worse. And the author really wants to show us that eventually they became worse than the Canaanites themselves. You see, the Canaanites, as even secular history shows, were just a brutal and savage people. But the reason that God gave Israel the land of Canaan and told him to wipe out the Canaanites was because he says they filled up the measure of their sins. I have had enough. They are going to get what's coming to them. They were horrific people. And so God warns them going in, you've got to destroy them. You've got to drive them out. 
Don't let them hang around. But what did Israel do instead? Well, instead of driving them out, they made compromises. Initially, they spared a few. Then they made a few others. Well, we'll just make them slaves. They, they can't do anything as slaves. They're under our captivity and they can, they can help us uh, serve in our fields and you know, build roads and things of that nature. But human success and wisdom, according to, oh, this is a better solution if we make them slaves, is never true success or wisdom if you're disobeying God. In this sense, omitting, failing to positively do what God commanded is just as evil as willfully breaking His commandments and doing what you ought not to do. That's the lesson we learn. So the result with Israel is what we will call canonization. This is a theme that comes up again and again in the book. Israel absorbed the values and beliefs and practices of the pagan nations around them. And in the end, they ended up being just like them. They even absorbed the Canaan gods, Baal. In this sense, it wasn't an overt rejection of Yahweh. They weren't setting Yahweh aside and denying Him and, and, and then you know, bowing down to Baal. They just began to see that, that Baal, who was the storm god, was just a little more relevant to their lives. He was a little more accessible than Yahweh. You know, Yahweh forbid making images or idols of Him. So you couldn't see Him. You couldn't put a visual to it. But not Baal. Yahweh seemed so far away, kind of disconnected from their real, immediate, and their their felt needs here and now. And so what began as a small compromise ended up consuming and ultimately almost destroying the entire worship of Yahweh altogether. And brethren, in this respect, the same is true for me and you. Failing to positively obey God's word, or even disobeying because we think we know better, surrounding ourselves in this world without taking seriously how the word commands us to be in the world but not of the world, absorbing the world's values, these are things that we can learn from. This book gives us a window into human nature, human nature that has not changed. It shows us the danger of doing what is right in our own eyes. It shows us the danger of neglecting the Word of God and failing to do it. It shows us the horrific consequences that come from breaking God's law. It shows us the inadequacy of our own efforts to secure the good life in our own power and rely upon temporary, quick fixes, fleeting pleasures, and ultimately false gods in our land. It shows us that when we give sin a foothold in our lives, when we make compromises, when we permit it even in small measure, there's no safeguard and no end to the downward spiral of destruction. It can and it will consume us. This book 
vividly illustrates the sinfulness of sin and how desperate we are apart from the grace and mercy of God. But on the heels of this, fourthly, is a glorious truth. Not only does it demonstrate our sin, but judges is also important because it demonstrates God's love and faithfulness and mercy and long-suffering towards His people. It vividly illustrates the mercy of God towards His people. In this sense, another way of putting it would be like God, excuse me, judges gives us not only a window into human sin, but it gives us a window into God's relationship and dealings with His people. You see, without a doubt, as we read this narrative, we're going to be struck by the fact that, wow, God, you should have written them off. You should have destroyed them all and started over. You should have left them to their own destruction. The cycle just continues and continues. God blesses them, and then they turn to evil. It makes God angry, so He brings them trials. And they cry out. Sometimes they don't even cry out in repentance. They just cry out, and yet God still hears. He doesn't always wait for us to repent and follow all the right steps. Sometimes He rescues His people just out of mere pity and compassion for us. But even still, almost as quickly as He rescues them and delivers them, they turn back to their sin again and again and again. And so we would expect, as we read this, for God to fully and finally crush them. To throw up His hands and say, All right, I give up. I've done this enough. I'm not delivering you anymore. You've blown it too many times. But that's not what we find. We find that God preserves His people, that God continues to hear the prayers of His people, that God continues to grant forgiveness to His people, sometimes before they even ask for it. And yes, God at times sends enemies in trials to bring pain and affliction to them, to to help them wake up, to to drive them to the point of despair, and and to get them to realize what they're doing. And, And of course, that's the same for us as well. Isn't it? God's normal way of dealing with His children is at times bringing pain and difficulty and trial, circumstances upon us in our life that drive us to Christ, that drive us to find our deepest love and and purpose and satisfaction and dependence upon Him. He lets us fall into sin from time to time. He chastens us for it so that we realize who we are and who He is. He does this because He loves us. This is a manifestation of His great love. This is a love that will not let go. We can look at this love for Israel and see how much more is this true for His love for us who are in Christ. And thus, at the end of the day, what we see in this is again that God is the main actor in this story. God is the main character in the book of Judges. In His sovereign will, He leaves them to their sin at times. 
In His sovereign will, He then brings forth pain and suffering. Then He hears his, their prayers and groans, which is a manifestation of His love. Then He brings salvation, a divine intervention, which is a demonstration of His power. In all of this, He's the main actor. In all of this, we are to see that God is present. God is present. Even when it seems like He isn't. God is present in your life in pain, in difficulty, in trial, in hardship, in, in sin, in backsliding, in doubts, in depressions, and anxieties, and troubles. God is present there as well. Despite everything else around us communicating that He has abandoned us. So this book teaches us about the grace and mercy and long-suffering of our God towards His people. You know, as we get into this book and we see some of these characters, some of their sins, some of them who appear in Hebrews chapter 11, the great hall of fame of faith, we're going to see this. And you know what we're going to see? If God can show such Grace and salvation to such horrible and despicable people as this? Surely then, there must be hope for me. Judges shows you that there is hope for you. Well, all of this very fittingly leads to a fifth and final reason why Judges is important. I've already hinted at it. Judges is important because it points us to Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. Judges is important because it teaches us about Jesus Christ. As I mentioned, the book opens with that leadership crisis. And it ends with that leadership crisis. And the chaos that ensues that when there is not a leader, and there are not the right kind of leaders. Through these various judges, as it progresses, it's clear that something is missing, something must change. That's why the narrator, the, the author, closes with that statement. In those days, there was no king in Israel. Just to put this in context, folks, you're shocked by what you read because there was no king in Israel. And so in this sense, it prepares us for what comes in the very next book, 1 Samuel, and the kingship, right? But as we know from subsequent history, even with a royal kingship in Israel, the problem of sin still is never fully addressed. God's judges and God's kings were good and helpful for a time, but eventually they died. Eventually they were not enough. And this is where we must see how judges proclaims to us the Lord Jesus Christ. We learn in Judges about our sin and how He has taken it upon Himself and leads us from that bondage. We learn about our enemies and how powerless we are to fight them, but how He has come to defeat all His and our enemies. We learn about what kind of Savior that He is, how He saves His own, what kind of rule and peace that He is ushering in. 
The book shows us how Jesus Christ stepped in at the right time and subdued us to Himself and, and so that we won't be overtaken by sin and idolatry um, to the destruction of our souls. And how He stepped in to rule us as well and to open up His way of life before us. How He has restrained and conquered all, all His and our enemies, even sin, even Satan, even death itself. See, Judges was written so that Israel would see the problem of their sin and they would recognize Jesus Christ ahead of time. Ahead of time. Before He entered the world so that they might embrace their Savior. And the same is true for us as well. This book puts Christ on display. He is the ultimate deliverer. He is the ultimate judge of judge. He is the ultimate king. He is that eschatological man that all of these judges and all of these things foreshadow, anticipate, and long for. What will change? The author died not seeing those things, but we looking back can see. What has changed? The Lord Jesus Christ has come. He is our ruler. He is our leader. He is our king. He has infinite love for us as He died for our sins and conquered sin, Satan, and death and now ushers us into that promised land of rest where we have deliverance from all of our enemies. Brethren, this book is important because in this book we find the gospel of Jesus Christ. Is there anything more relevant than that? Is there anything more relevant than seeing our Savior on display? Well, brethren, these are the reasons why this book is important. And these are some of the themes that we will explore in greater detail in the weeks and months ahead. My prayer is that God would use this study to show us the sinfulness of sin, the inadequacy of our own efforts and strength, the fleeting pleasures and consequences of chasing after false gods, so that we might see the true sufficiency and love and finished work that Jesus Christ has done for us. We might rest in His ruling of our lives and Him completing the work of grace that He began in us. May God give us such grace to see and receive these things. Amen. Let's pray.